I became a Christian back in 1974 when I knelt beside my bed in Blackburn, about half a mile from Ewood Park, and it's there that I committed my life to the Lord Jesus. Little did I realize the journey that God would take me on throughout all these years. When I was in school, I had no real interest in, in history. In fact, I failed my history at O-level, and uh, I can see myself in bed thinking, what went wrong? But, you know, ever since that, it was a bit like, I don't know, it was a kick up the backside, really. It woke me up. Uh, what are you doing with your life, my boy? You just can't go through life taking exams that you've never revised for. And from that point on, God put a, a desire in my heart to learn about church history. Uh, and I spent a lot of my time just, just reading church history as well as trying to preach two or three times a week. But in all my reading, I kept coming across a man called John Mott. And I said to myself, who on earth is John Mott? And, and people kept quoting him, but I could never find anything out about him. And then every now and then I kept coming across the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference, 1910. Never read a book on it, never heard anyone speak on it. And so as, uh, as lockdown kind of began to descend upon us, I thought, I'm going to use this time to try and find out about John Mott and about the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference in 1910. And I'm going to speak for about 50, 55 minutes on it. You've probably never heard anything like this before. It's totally different from what we looked at last night in relation to uh, Christmas Evans. And will be totally different from Raymond Lull. And I take responsibility for all that I'm going to say. And I've tried to pull together all that I know, which, hence the reason why it's only going to take 50 odd minutes. But I'm going to try and pull together all that I know of, of church history into what was happening in this country 110 years ago. You say, well, that's a long time ago. Believe me, it isn't. We've been coming together like this as a group of people, including COVID now, for nine years. It's frightening, isn't it? You think, where is that decade virtually gone? And we've been coming, just gathering sort of year by year to, to look at the things of God. 110 years, it's just gone like that. And, and this morning we heard from Martin, what is happening in our society today? We not, need to know what was happening in this country 110 years ago which will help you understand the lie of the land into which most of us were born. And so I want to speak about the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference. It took place in 1910, between the 14th and the 23rd of June. And no less than 1,215 delegates descended upon Edinburgh to learn about world mission. In those days, there was a slogan going round the world among evangelicals. It came out of America. Here's the slogan. The evangelization of the world in this generation. And the idea at the beginning the idea being at the beginning of the twentieth century, we are now going to see the world one for Jesus in our generation. And that was all stated in Edinburgh. Well, on a very special day in relation to Robbie Burns, <laughs> let me quote him an Anglicide version of it. <laughs> The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. I want to tell you what happened at that conference, why it took place, and why you've probably never heard of it. And then what we can learn from it. In 1910, how frightening is this? The world population was 1.7 billion. Here we are, 110 years later, we're knocking on the door of 8 billion. Just about. What has happened to our world in the last hundred years. It has just exploded. My wife and I have no children. Why? We're trying to save the planet. (laughs) 
we're doing our bit. (laughs) In those days, the world was a lot smaller place. You can well imagine that. And the West was incredibly dominant. And and the dominant religion in the Western world, I say religion, was, was Christianity. And it was believed if we could take the politics of the West around the world, and we could take the religion of the West around the world, the world will be a better place, and the world will be one for Jesus. So we have that great quotation, don't we? We fought to make the world safe for democracy, and then discover that democracy is not safe for the world. And so this big battle took place at the beginning of the 20th century, which really shaped the world. 110 years ago, there were 45,000 people in full-time Christian work around the world. And the Missionary Conference in Edinburgh said, if we can triple that by 1930, we'll have 135,000 people on the mission field getting the message of Jesus out, and who knows what's going to happen. That was a day, I suppose, of the Fabian society and prevailing optimism. And the church believed it had the money and the means and the manpower and the mechanism to bring in the kingdom of God. And if you open mission prayers, you find hymns that have no theological basis whatsoever, generally speaking, from cover to cover. But there are some glaring ones. And and yet people sang this kind of rubbish. And the darkness shall turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday bright, till Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, that kingdom of love and light. Well, here we are, 110 years later, saying, where on earth is that kingdom? And it's not getting brighter, it's getting darker. And the church believed in 1910, it's now or never. And it's amazing reading all the blurb that came out. They kind of wrote their own press reports and believed them. And they said that outside of Pentecost and outside of the Reformation, this is the biggest opportunity for the Christian church to win the world for Jesus. It's either now or never. The Archbishop of Canterbury at that time was a man called Randall Davidson. If Randall Davidson was an evangelical, then I'm a Mormon. Uh, His arm had to be twisted to go there because he didn't think it was fitting for the Archbishop to be seen with such an eclectic gathering of people. It wasn't good for his image or for the Christian church. Anyway, eventually he went because he was told, you've got to go, and so he went. So he opened the whole assembly, and, and during his sermon he said this, it may well be that there be some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. I never knew the Lord Jesus was referring to 1910 when he actually said those words uh, just prior to being transfigured there on on Mount Hermon. It sounds a bit to me like Joel Austin, one of the Kansas City prophets. When he said that, a kind of wave of enthusiasm went round the hall in Edinburgh like a Mexican wave. Everyone got excited. Can you believe it? I could be one of those who's going to see the arrival of the kingdom of God in my generation. If you want it bluntly, it was Western European optimism and a lot of Western arrogance and a bit of imperialism with the gospel thrown in. But amazingly, it duped most people. You say, how could someone organize a world missionary conference in Edinburgh? Five streams came together. And I find these are interesting streams. Prior to this, there have been two global missionary conferences. One took place in London in 1888, and it attracted 1,579 delegates. 
Twelve years later, another one took place in New York and attracted two and a half thousand delegates. And it was agreed. Wow, the momentum's building. Let's get one over in the UK again. We had such a warm welcome there. And while that was going on, others were taking place in Shanghai, which kind of blows the mind. You would never imagine a missionary conference taking place there now. Madras. And all around the world, these kind of missionary conferences were coming together, and it was believed, let's get a big one. Let's get the third one. And let's call it the Ecumenical Missionary Conference. I have to say, in those days, generally speaking, the atmosphere was ecumenical in the true sense of the word. Let's get as many brothers and sisters on board. It was certainly evangelical in its theology, and it was certainly evangelistic. For credit, we've got to give it to them. But, you know, after a while, they thought this word ecumenical is getting a little bit slippy. You know, let's drop it because it's being misunderstood. So, previous missionary conference said, we need another one. Secondly, you've heard of the Evangelical Alliance. It started in 1846 and had very, very good roots. And when they had their inaugural meeting in 1846, no less than 800 delegates gathered together at the opening meeting representing 52 churches stroke Christian organizations primarily in this country. So you can see then in the sort of 1800s there were people saying, we've got to get out, we've got to do something. Six months after the Edinburgh Missionary Conference, they produced a, a bi-monthly magazine. The magazine said the Evangelical Alliance had a great influence on this conference coming to Edinburgh. We were really behind it, pushing it. And then number three, you may find this hard to believe, Keswick. 29 years after the founding of the Evangelical Alliance, Keswick as a convention was born with a desire to see people have a, a deeper hunger for the things of God under the banner of all one in Christ Jesus. I don't know if I should confess this, but I live on the doorstep almost as Keswick and never been in my life, which almost sounds blasphemous to some people, but it is not the unforgivable sin. I've been reassured of that. <laughs> Keswick was keen on holiness, but then started to develop a missionary interest. You know, just keep looking at your navel is not really what holiness is all about. Let's look at the world. And I find it interesting, some of the key players in the Edinburgh Missionary Conference actually were given the platform at Keswick. And what blows me away, and, and I'm telling you, these are things that probably won't hear elsewhere, and that over half of the people who got on the platform speaking about Edinburgh 1910 weren't even evangelical. I'm thinking, how come you've got under the radar and you can address all these people when I know your theology stinks? Is anything but evangelical? And certainly not buying into the Keswick line. And, and, and there were some well-known people who were good evangelicals who got a Keswick, but others weren't, who spoke at the missionary evening saying, oh, I've just come from, from Edinburgh. Oh, I've seen, I've seen the promised land. You've got to buy into this. And then how about this? Are you ready? The YMCA. Now, when I mentioned the YMCA to my generation, thought look at me and say, young man, <laughs> what are you doing on the ground? Pick yourself up. You know, thinking, do you listen to YMCA? 110 years ago, the YMCA said what the label says. It was a young men's Christian organization. 
the founder of the YMCA, a man called uh, George Williams. Great character. He loved the Lord. And by the way, you've heard of the Cambridge Seven. When the Cambridge Seven had their final valedictory service to kind of go out onto the mission field, it was under the auspices of the YMCA. And Sir George Williams, he was the man who chaired the meeting, saying, isn't it great these young men are going overseas to China to preach the gospel? You've heard of a man called Oswald Chambers. Yeah? He did sterling work for the Lord in Cairo. Remember seeing his grave. I kind of came back and kicked myself because about a quarter mile just down the road was, was Mr. Borden. You know, Bord, Robert Borden. You know, the man who sort of died while he was trying to get out to the Far East. But there I saw the grave of Oswald Chambers. He died working for the YMCA in Cairo, working among First World War soldiers, sharing Jesus with them. The man who was the driving force behind the Edinburgh conference was a man called Joe Odom. And he'd been on the mission field with the YMCA for 10 years in India. And... Uh, Another man who was big into the YMCA is a man that you've probably heard of, Henry Drummond. You've heard of Henry Drummond? People go, oh, lovely man, great character. During lockdown, I also spent my time digging into the life of Henry Drummond. D.L. Moody loved Henry Drummond and wanted Drummond to go to America to work with him. Drummond said, no, my work is in Scotland. And for, and for 10 years, he held meetings for young men in Scotland. But what people don't tell you about Henry Drummond, and I'm not here to slander people, just to give you the facts to lay the ground, Henry Drummond loved seances, practiced hypnotism. When you read what he wrote, there is very little gospel in it. It's just moral kind of teaching. And he thought the idea of the father punishing the son for our sins. He didn't use the word cosmic child abuse, but that's exactly what he meant. And you think, how could Henry Drummond so deceive D.L. Moody? Horatio Bonner, uh, sorry, Horatius Bonner, called Horace to his friends, uh, he said he is a dangerous man. He looks like he has the gospel, but when you scratch below the surface, there is nothing but moral teaching there. The YMCA was a big driver in getting the Edinburgh Missionary Conference off the ground. And then there's the student volunteer movement. That came out of America primarily. And the student volunteer movement then gave birth to the Student Volunteer Missionary Union. Great organization. D.L. Moody. A.T. Pearson. And these devotional but inspirational speakers said to people, it's not you sitting in our churches, let's get out and tell people about Jesus. And so the SVM was started. In this country, it also became very, very big. And, uh, and, and people like, people like F.B. Mayer, beautiful man, devout, sort of Christian evangelical, he was all for it, saying, yes, let's get young people out serving God. And out of the SVM came the SVMU, the kind of missionary union, and uh, they had in three years 6,000 students in colleges and universities say, when I finished, I want to go on the mission field. You've heard of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, one of his brothers was called J.E.K. Studd. 
why they always have kind of letters for their names instead of their names. But anyway, uh, I'm D.S. Earnshaw, by the way. Uh, J.E.K. Studd went to America and, and said to all these young people, come on, God has done a wonderful thing for us. What are we going to do in response? Just sit in churches? A young man sitting in one of those meetings was a man called John Mott. And when Mott heard this, he said, I want to give my life to world mission. He then heard a sermon by A.T. Pearson. A.T. Pearson followed C.H. Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They were theologically miles apart. To be honest, Pearson shouldn't really have gone there. He was the wrong man for the job. But anyway, he was a very kind of inspirational preacher with world mission on his heart. And if you see the picture at the back there on my board, when I was in New York many, many years ago, I found his grave just pure by, by chance, a great serendipity. And there is a globe of the world on his grave saying, I want the world to be one for Jesus. John Mott, this student, heard this young stud, heard A.T. Pearson and said, Lord, if these men are right, my life is given to world mission. What is incredible is this. He never went on the mission field. He said, well, what did he do? He spent his life going around colleges, universities, churches, conferences, coming to Keswick, saying to people, go on the mission field. But he himself never went. And he became a kind of growing number of people who had this glorious title, Christian Statesman, to represent the Christian church. And uh, he went on world tours, did John Mott. Now, his biography is there at the back. It cost me an arm and a leg. And, and because I'm tight with my money, even when a book is boring, I try to get to the end of it if I paid for it. I used to read ten pages a day. That's all I could take. It was just like reading the life of a celebrity. He met presidents, kings, princes, princesses, politicians, governors, dined in the White House, met the King of England. Oh, what a wonderful Christian he is, talking about world mission. How about this? He went on a world tour, paid for by the church. How much did the world tour cost? In 1911, $101,000. Okay, if you type into Google, the search engine, <laughs> I was listening, you'll see that in today's value, that's just over two million pounds. So here's this statesman who, in great sincerity, said, I want to win the world for Jesus and get people motivated. He goes on a world tour. Before he set off on his world tour, somebody in the organization thought it would be great to give him a gold watch. Just like the one Paul got from the church in Antioch. <laughs> and so, throughout his life, he went to Asia seven times, Russia five times, Africa three times, Australia twice, Latin America once, and a whole host of other places in between. He was employed by the YMCA, he was employed by the SVMU, he thought it would be a great idea to have a conference on world mission. Yeah, I bet you would. So he was the main driving force from that kind of background with Joe Odom, a man who'd been on the mission field in, in, in India. Pull these five streams together and you have this, right, let's get this world mission conference going and win the world for Jesus. 
William Carey, a hundred years before, just said casually one day to his friend, I think every ten years we should have a World Missionary Conference to try and move the work forward. Andrew Fuller, I love, I have to do a talk on Andrew Fuller one of these days. He said that was one of his pleasing dreams. Well, amazingly, just over a hundred years later, that dream came to fruition when this mission conference took place in Edinburgh. First of all, it should have taken place in London. But the Brits in London were a little bit slow to pick it up. And a man called Mr. J. Furley Davies said, come on, we're going nowhere with this. I'm going to go to Scotland and try and get a committee going. So he got together a committee of people in Scotland to plan this missionary conference. When he got together a committee of people, he found out, I'm only telling you what he said. He said, these Scots are like fossils. They've all got grey hair and they've got grey attitudes. So he said, we better bring in some people from London. So, so some people came up from London to the conference. Well, we, well, there's no Americans. We better bring the Americans up. But not too many will take over. <laughs> By the way, they said nothing about the Germans and towels. But anyway. So after, I mean, the wheeling and dealing I've read through during these past 18 months, committees, subcommittees, sub-subcommittees, planning meetings, it makes Brexit seem like a walk in the park. <laughs> After many hundreds of committee meetings and train journeys all around the country, they agreed right. June 1910, Edinburgh. We are going to call it an inspirational jamboree for mission enthusiasts. Dash and serious business gathering for appointed experts. They agreed the Assembly Hall of the United Free Church of Scotland in Edinburgh. The next question is, who do we invite? Hmm. What is going to be the defining kind of a Rubicon as to whether people can come or not? How about this? Money. If you want to send a delegate, you must show us how much money your missionary society gets every year. Now, we're going back 110 years ago. If your budget is over £200 per year, which in today's value is about £23,000, you go, well, that's a joke. Yeah, but sometimes even bringing money into the 21st century, it doesn't work. It was an awful lot of money then. If you had over £200 coming in for mission, you could send one delegate. If you had over £400, you could send two delegates. So what happened? It finished up an elite gathering of of big societies who had big money. By the way, I have a sneaky suspicion that if this had taken place 2,000 years ago, that neither Paul nor Barnas would have been invited because Paul tells us when he wrote to the Philippians he knew how to abound, but also knew how to be in need. Can I see your budget, Paul? And by the way, do you think the Lord Jesus, the missionary, would have been invited when he was kept going by rich women? Obviously, no. It was estimated the conference to run would cost £10,000. That is about £1.25 in today's money. And so, right, let's start raising all this money to get the conference off the ground. For credit, they never sort of wrote begging letters. But you've heard me say before, while George Muller never asked for money, he did have a circular letter of 25,000 people who received it, just to let people know what was going on. 
they began to write letters to important people saying, would you like to be involved in this? Meaning, we'd like some money from you. But they had so many committee meetings that all the transport expenses swallowed up all the giving that came in. Because, you know, there's a meeting in Edinburgh, you live in London, right? Your expenses are paid on the train up and down and we'll put you in a hotel. So literally days before the convention started, they were panicking because they were thousands of pounds short of the target. The only thing that saved the day was the fact that all the talks were typed out and sold at 18 shillings a set. And uh, 15,000 copies were sold in this country. The Americans bought them big time, and it was only that that got the conference out of debt. You say, what are they going to talk about for eight days? Well, every day was given over to a different subject. And uh, I've written all the subjects down there. Virtually everything to do with world mission was going to be discussed for eight days. But how can you get 1,200 people talking? Ah, the strategy was very interesting. Every paper had a chairman. And every chairman had 20 experts. And for two years, the chairman and those experts would discuss their given subject. They would write to missionaries. They would visit missionaries. They would get missionaries to come to them. They would collate all this information and then together would write a paper. It would then be published so everyone coming knew what was going to be read. And the paper on that day was then read for 45 minutes. And then after it had been read, you could then be open to questions. Ah, but you couldn't raise your hand. Excuse me, we'll just get the microphone to this brother. If you wanted to ask a question, you had to fill in a form to say, this is who I am, this is who I'm from, this is my question. And the chairman would look to see if that was a worthwhile question to sort of respond to. You had seven minutes. If you were allowed to ask a question to the speaker, you were brought to the front. After six minutes, the chairman rang the bell, which said, this is your last minute. And you could even be in mid-sentence when the seven minutes were up. Sit down, brother. So during the eight days, they heard eight, sorry, 300 people ask questions. A very kind of interesting day indeed. What about theology? Was there any theology driving this missionary conference 110 years ago? Would you like it in one word? No. They said, we want a conference to discuss mission, but not theology. Theology divides people, so let's keep that out of the question altogether. What I find very sad is a man called William Young Fullerton. You know William Young Fullerton. He came to faith in Christ under the preaching of C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon kind of uh, really nurtured him, and he became president of the Baptist Union. He actually preached in the church where I pastor. And when he was in the manse, I don't live in the manse, uh, but when he visited the church where I pastor and was in the manse speaking at a convention, he finished the final verse of that hymn, I cannot tell it is, uh, I cannot tell it is why angels worship. You know that hymn? Yeah, okay. That song's going to go around the world. He, he finished that hymn in, 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 in the manse where, where kind of we, we are now up in Lancashire. He, he was asked, well, what about theology, Mr. Fullerton? Listen to his answer. It has been wrought into the fabric of my being this year that we must cooperate before we agree. 
We must cooperate before we settle all our doctrinal or ecclesiastical differences. We can settle them after we have united, and we'll settle them a great deal easier afterwards than before. Do you understand that? Basically, let's not talk about theology. We'll all work together, and then when the dust settles, we'll talk about theology. So what was the title of the convention? Evangelization of the world in this generation. Whoop! That's too theological. We'll change the title. A consideration of the problems facing missionary societies in the non-Christian world. So this conference was decidedly Protestant, loosely evangelical, broadly ecumenical, but no Catholics were involved, and nobody came from the Orthodox Church. The conference nearly collapsed before it started, because somebody said, what about the Anglo-Catholics? Okay, we've said no to the Catholics, but do we invite the Anglo-Catholics? We better do. Who was the leading Anglo-Catholic in this country 110 years ago? Bishop Gore, the Bishop of Birmingham. How about this? You may think I'm making all this up. Believe me, I'm not making it up. Bishop Gore said, if we include any societies at this conference that reach out to Catholics, we're pulling out because they're part of the family of God. How insulting to, to have missionaries from Roman Catholic countries when they're already in the kingdom. Now, you can understand, as I was kind of reading the stuff, that's why I only took ten pages a day, was I just can't believe the stuff I'm reading. And so evangelicals who went right throughout this conference and would bow down to that kind of theology then got into Keswick and was saying how wonderful this convention was. I'm thinking, if you had stood up at Keswick as the main Bible teacher and preached this kind of stuff, you'd have been thrown out. Well, Archbishop Gore was really pulling the strings. Eventually, through ecumenical diplomacy by John Mott and also Joe Oden, that things were calmed and it was agreed we don't bring anyone from a Roman Catholic country. When they arrived, after sort of gallons of ink had been spilt, before they all started, they had a retreat. Where do we have a retreat? Paid for by the Christian Church. Let's go to Gotland in North York, Moors, where Heartbeat was filmed. Remember that? So next time you see Heartbeat, think of Edinburgh, 1910. And all these world leaders were having a, a relaxing time, just, just relaxing before the convention started. The Americans chartered their own ship. A 12,780-ton ship called the Kroonland. And they were given a special 10% discount if they were coming to the convention. If you were an important, well-known Christian in the 20th century, you were put up in a hotel. But if you weren't, you stopped with ordinary families who were members of the church in Edinburgh. A daily newspaper was printed every day, and people had to wear name tags. So lanyards are nothing new. And guess what? Every day the chairman said from the front, would you please wear your name tag? The delegates arrived. 509 were British, 491 were American, 169 came from continental Europe, 
27 were white people from South Africa and Australasia. 19 were non-Western. Uh, 35% were Asian, 65% Western. 179 missionary societies were, were sent delegates. Nobody came from Latin America. Nobody came from the Pacific Islands. Nobody came from the Caribbean. And nobody came primarily from countries that were predominantly Roman Catholic. There were only 207 women there out of 1,215, and no black African Christians were deemed worthy of an invitation. Before the convention, now you probably know why you've never heard of this convention, you see. Before the convention started, there were preliminary gatherings, and I love this story. Someone had the bright idea of reading out the name of every delegate at the introduction to the conference. 1,215. <laughs> By 9 o'clock, folk were wilting. So they stopped it. Can you imagine being the person right after they'd stopped it? <laughs> thinking, I've waited three hours for this. And now my name is not even going to be mentioned. Oh, and surprise, surprise, Edinburgh University handed out 14 honorary doctorates. Guess who was the first one to get one? John Mott. Dr. John Mott. Who opened the ceremony? Lord Balfour. You've heard of the Balfour Declaration? Lord Balfour, by the way, was an impressive six foot five inches tall man. He kind of was the master of the ceremonies. After they'd opened with all people that on earth do dwell, Alexander White, who, by the way, was never really truly evangelical. His, his understanding of scripture was not what you and I perhaps would feel was, was comfortable. He then led in prayer. And then the Archbishop of Canterbury spoke and spoke about the kingdom of God coming in, in our generation. How about this? After the Archbishop had spoke, someone struck up the national anthem. It's world mission. What's world mission and the British national anthem got in common? When you've got all these delegates from around the world. And what I find funny, we're told that all the American delegates sang the national anthem. <laughs> these are the relatives of those who threw the tea chests into the Boston Harbor in the days of George III, saying, stuff your British monarchy. And yet here were their relatives singing the national anthem. Who was the chairman at every meeting? Dr. John Mott. He was loving every second of it. They started off with prayer, and then a lecture, and then questions, and then prayer, and then lunch, and then another paper and questions. But they noticed folk were missing the prayer meetings. So they began to mix the prayer meetings up. Folk were nicking out early for a longer lunch. So those kind of things have always gone on. And... Uh, they had 350 places for the public every day, for Joe Public to just come and sort of observe. But even they were like gold dust. And, uh, well, there we are. All the papers, believe me, were very academic. And I think, if we're absolutely honest, if you or I had sat there, we too perhaps would have thought, I need to go for an early lunch. This is tiresome. They're all very, very academic. And uh, what is interesting is this. Take, for example, paper number four, the church's missionary message in relation to the non-Christian world. 
virtually nobody on that committee had been on the mission field. But it was just people with degrees in theology sort of discussing spiritual things. Remember that great quotation by the late Sidlow Baxter? He said, uh, we're filling the pulpit with degrees, and by degrees we're emptying the church. So this went on for eight days, and you can imagine these folk having a whale of a time. What was the outcome of all this? Let's form a committee to pull together some of our ideas to push them forward. Who's going to run the committee? Oh, Dr. John Mott. And who's going to be your sidekick? Dr. Joe, oh, so, sorry, I mean I'm a doctor, I apologize, Joe, Joe Odom. John Mott said it was the highlight of his life, the most notable gathering in the interest of worldwide expansion of Christianity. He eventually, by the way, got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1946. But when he did die, he was buried in Washington Cathedral. And I contacted Washington Cathedral, and I uh, wrote him a very, very polite letter, and I said, you can check me out on the internet, I, I think I'm normal, this is not a kind of spoof, but could you please send me a photograph of his monument in Washington Cathedral, because I'm going to speak to a whole group of evangelists. Maybe they went on the website of the few and thought, there's no way we're going to send him a photograph. <laughs> so they never did answer my letter, but that's where he's buried, a national hero. What happened next? Four things. Number one, the Titanic sank. So what's that got to do with it? The Titanic was a massive blow to Western confidence. <coughs> oh, how foolish. The Titanic went down. Many people's hopes went down with it. Two years later, World War I started, which ripped the world apart. What is interesting is this, if you analyze the data of all the mainline denominations after 1910, missionary interest did not increase, it rapidly declined. And then, liberal theology took hold of the church, and believe me, ripped the church in this country right apart, right apart. And uh, I've heard people speak who kind of came off the back of that generation to say it was very difficult to find evangelical books and people who could answer liberalism from an evangelical point of view because when I went to college all I got was liberalism. And I have to say I trained in the Baptist Union and I'm glad that God put me in there because it now means I can smell a liberal five miles off. <laughs> and uh, for three years I was basically taught liberal theology and I don't recommend it for everybody but for me it made me the kind of person I am and I thank God he put me through that what happened to John Mott and Joe Odom John Mott became the founder and one of the fathers of the ecumenical movement if you go onto the website of the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches you'll find that John Mott is one of their heroes that's where he finished up. Right. How do I wrap this up and get some common sense out of it? I have seven things I want to say in the remaining 15 minutes that I trust are, are very helpful to us. Number one, I've come to realize that the biggest missionary impact in the 20th century was brought about by those 
who didn't go to the conference and who would never get an invite. It is so easy to mistake the clicking of ecclesiastical machinery for spirituality. Take, for example, the Plymouth Brethren. They wouldn't have touched this with a barge pole. And yet, when I did those three talks on the Christian Brethren several years ago, the thousands of people that gathering of believers put onto the mission field is highly commendable. And I want to argue anyone who had a real love of the gospel would not have gone to something like this. And if they had gone, would very quickly have said, this is a waste of time, I've got to get out of it. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? God has chosen the weak things of this world and the foolish things of this world and that not many wise and not many noble, not many great. No, no. God, we seem to think that God works through the big. But I've come to realize that generally speaking, that's not how God works. And it's all right preaching God works through Gideon's 300, but we have to believe it. We have to believe it. So I look at this and think, what a waste of money. What a waste of time. Thank God for those who didn't go. Secondly, I am amazed at people who call themselves evangelicals who turn a blind eye to glaring biblical principles and think if we can turn our backs on those problems, they'll go away. What is astounding is this. The China Inland Mission got heavily involved, hook, line and sinker. Walter Sloan, a man called Marshall Brumel, big into the Edinburgh Missionary Conference. And then suddenly, the China Inland Mission woke up and said, wait a minute, this is going nowhere. And thank God, they pulled out. Hanley Mool, Keswick speaker, wonderful evangelical. I can't understand it. He was so blind to the unbelief that was going on in the conference. And then I say to myself, how could you be involved in a conference that bans people who are working in Roman Catholic countries? How can you do that? And most of the people who were on the committees had a very pragmatic liberal view of scripture. Well, it doesn't really matter. They had a big discussion in, uh, in one of their kind of committees about what was on the paper. And it was agreed by the committee that, that hell must be dismissed. So why are you evangelizing the world if there's no hell? And again, I, I, I'm, I kind of was reading this stuff and trying to process all this, thinking, how could evangelical people work with rank liberals who, who dismiss the very essence of what the gospel is about and yet still carry on working with them? totally blind and, and deaf to all this. By the way, in the end, we know that when the World Council of Churches started, in fact, not long after Edinburgh 1910, the Catholics were involved in the next conference and so were the Orthodox Church. And, and it's been like that ever since. By the way, a hundred years after, Edinburgh had a, a 2010 Missionary World Conference. You can see it on the internet. It's a million miles from anywhere where any of us are standing today. I look back thirdly at this boundless optimism which basically was just Western imperialism. There was a man from India, I love him, 
Samuel Azariah. Samuel Azariah was known to Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi said privately, he is my number one enemy, for he's always talking about Jesus. And Gandhi, sorry, Gandhi had a conference with Samuel Azariah and a few other evangelicals, and he said to them, would you please stop converting Hindus to Jesus? Just stick to humanitarian work, forget the conversion stuff. Samuel Azariah said, no way, I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. He came, I'll tell you about him in a few minutes, in, in my next point, he was disgusted. And when he saw it, he stood up and said, this is not missionary work, this is Western imperialism. I'm shocked by what I found. He said, you talk as if you were going to win the world. He said, you weren't going to win the world. It's the kingdom of God. And you don't own the kingdom of God. Some folk loved it. The authorities get that man off that stage as quick as possible. We have to be careful. Even in the 21st century, we do not come across with this arrogance that we have all the answers. I'm always touched by the fact that the Lord Jesus sat on the well at Samaria and in a position of vulnerability said to a lady, could you please give me a drink? We walk in with all our money, with all our machinery, with all our manpower, we're going to sort you out because we've got it right. We need to be humble as we approach people in those kind of situations. Fourthly, the top table Christianity that went on was unbelievable. Do you know, in this huge hall, you can see pictures of the hall at the back, you were seated according to protocol. So the important people were up near the front and, and kind of the high poli were at the back. Who worked that out? The Bishop of Madras couldn't come but sent his wife. Isabel Whitehead. She did not want to come across as being pompous, and so she traveled second class coming into Naples on the boat. But she traveled with Samuel Azariah, this man who called it British imperialism. You go third class, brother. When they docked in Naples, she was booked into a top hotel. He had to go down the road ten minutes for a bed and breakfast. When he got off in the hall and saw this snobbery, he, he just said, uh, I can't cope with this. He almost went home. You see, remember James? James talks about the man with the gold ring. And, and here's a man coming from a poor background who's an evangelist in India going, what's this? This is the gold ring. This is not Christianity. So I find that in, in incredibly humbling. And, and imagine someone saying to you, you think, great, I've got a night of, or eight nights in an Edinburgh hotel. No, you're down the road with Mrs. McLachlan. Okay. She got a dog. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> and a cat. You know how it is? And noisy neighbors. By the way, have you not run into top table Christianity? You go to a minister's induction. We'll put all the ministers together on the top table. It's no different. We're no different from anybody else, folks. Just the fact we talk with our mouths about Jesus does not make us any different from anybody else. I loathe top table Christianity that, 
Because you're married to somebody's daughter or related to somebody's father-in-law. Oh, oh, that's great. My dear friends, we're just ordinary people. And our genius is not our family background or our wealth. Our genius is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that in common. Number five, I have to say I have serious misgivings about a man called John Mott. When you dig below the surface and look into his life, wow, what an interesting life he lived. He went to the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, which was a very dodgy thing anyway. When you read his biography, which was written by a non-evangelical who's not trying to cover up but thinking, this is wonderful, he says he was always dropping in to see cardinals and bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and a year after the Edinburgh Missionary Conference, he, he then started a magazine with his friend Joe Oden, in which he got all these Roman Catholics writing about spiritual life. And suddenly the man reveals his true self. Hmm. Beware of always looking for the lowest common denominator. And guess what? The majority, this rings alarm bells for me as a pastor. The majority of their business meetings always took place on a Sunday. Which knocks people out of the local church. I speak as a pastor and say, well, does it make much of a difference? Believe me, when you're a pastor, it does. So most of these men, generally speaking, for a very long time, didn't go to church, which is worrying when you're involved in the Lord's work. You're that busy doing the Lord's work and in this meeting and that meeting, but you never meet with God's people on a Sunday. That is always dangerous. Forgive my naughtiness. He went to one committee meeting which finished early. So he changed his ticket. He was booked on the Titanic. And because the meeting finished slightly early, he went on the previous boat, the Lapland. And I thought to myself, I wonder what would have happened if someone had gone on in the meeting and he'd missed the Lapland and had to go on the Titanic. We may never have heard of John Mott ever again. Did I say that? I don't think I said that at all. But anyway, the thought went through my head. Here's my sixth thing. Before we get the gospel out, we have to get the gospel right. I'll repeat that. Before we get the gospel out, we have to get it right. The gospel is not Jesus is your friend. Even talking about Jesus is not the gospel. Folk may laugh at it, but many years ago, folk spoke about being ruined by sin and redeemed by the Savior, and then being renewed by the Spirit. That is the Gospel. You can Jesus it all day long, but is he your Lord and Savior? In fact, these days, when you come to the BBC and kind of songs of praise, they don't even Jesus it, they just got it. They just talk about God. Which God? Well, you make up your own mind. And my dear friends, we must never lose sense of what the Gospel is. We are ruined by sin. We are redeemed by a Savior. We are then renewed by the Holy Spirit. Sad to say, a lot of this was just a lot of hot air that was just pushed by some misguided, egotistical people. And the final thing to say is this. In 1910, 
one-seventh of the world's population lived in South America. And yet nobody from that continent was allowed to come to the conference to explain the Christian work they were doing. And they called it the World Missionary Conference. It reminds me of the American World Series <laughs> for American baseball teams when only American teams are in it. Why do you call it the World Series? You'll probably understand why you've never heard of the World Missionary Conference. I kind of looked at this and thought, what a weird, weird happening this is. All that money, all that effort, but we haven't even heard of it. It's a warning to us, isn't it? It's a warning to say, Lord, may I not put my trust in organizations or in people, but in the gospel. Let me close. When I was in Baptist College, which was incredibly liberal, I didn't know that at the time, but the Lord knew for a whole list of reasons. I went through the system. Some very, very good men used to come into the college and, and were quite shocked that they got an invitation. One man who was very kind to me was a man called Hugh Morgan. Hugh Morgan actually preached at my ordination and uh, I got to know him. I said, if we give you an opening, would you come and speak in the Baptist College in Cardiff? Yes, I will. When he got an invitation, he was stunned and he told me his elders that night were praying desperately for him. What on earth is Hugh doing going into the Baptist College to preach? It was a glorious evening. I was there that night with Hugh Morgan and the principal of the Baptist College. Hugh had just brought his people out of the Presbyterian Church. David was big on the Baptist Church. In fact, it was said in the college, if the devil spoke Welsh, even he'd be included. So the principal said to Hugh Morgan, this man I was in great awe of, well, well, Mr. Morgan, how, how do your people feel having brought them out of the Presbyterian Church? How, how do they cope with it? Hugh Morgan, without batting an eye, said this, Dr. Davis, my people are so suspicious of any organization these days, they won't even join a Christmas club without speaking to me first. <laughs> my dear friends, be suspicious of anything except the Lord Jesus. He is everything to us. And I've come to realize the only way really to talk about the Lord Jesus is to be in love with him and to appreciate what he's done for you and out of a full heart to share him with others. My prayer is we go home from the FEW conference. I call it the fellowship of eclectic workers. <laughs> the word eccentric came to mind, but no, I thought eclectic was... <laughs> What is evangelism? Just one beggar. Take another beggar. Where there's food. My friends, don't put your trust in the few. Don't put your trust in any organization. Keep close to Jesus. And do you know something? He will use you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what you've shown us this afternoon. Totally different, I admit that. Some of it's quite disturbing. Some of it's very encouraging. 
But Lord, it's a warning for us not to think that we are on the committee of the kingdom of God. All that we are is servants of an illustrious master. And Father, we thank you for organizations that work well and work hard to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, may they never become bigger than the kingdom of God and never bigger than the gospel. And Father, we give you thanks that evangelism is not a technique. It's a relationship with the one who saved us. Father, thank you that you sent your son to be our savior. And we give you thanks that in the kingdom of God, there's no top table. There are no financial barriers. But the doors are open wide. And the message is this. Whosoever will may come. Father, your grace is so amazing that sometimes we find ourselves lost for words. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Father, thank you for our time together. If I've said anything that's wrong, wash it out of our minds. But if there's anything of good value, use it to make us better people for Jesus. Because we ask it in his precious name. Amen.